So thank you for joining us on today's podcast. I have the honor and privilege to have Justin Belcher with us today, the first author on a recent manuscript in hepatology entitled Kidney Biomarkers and Differential Diagnosis of Patients with Cirrhosis and Acute Kidney Injury. Welcome, and thanks for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you, Dr. Harrison. It's nice to be with you today. Well, I find your paper fascinating, and uh, there's also a, a very nice editorial on page 455 of the, uh, the August edition. And, and I think it's very important that our readers understand how the study helps them. And, and I want to put it in context for them in their own clinical practice. And so for most of you, you understand that acute kidney injury is common in patients with cirrhosis, occurring in almost one in five admissions. And then sometimes it's tough to distinguish acute tubular necrosis from pre-renal azotemia and a paterenal syndrome. In fact, I had just such a case on the ward today. And so finding a non-invasive test that would help us differentiate this is a major finding, and it would help us dramatically in our clinical practice. And I think we took a step forward toward that with your study, and I would love for you to kind of just, just walk us through your study and then maybe take us through some of the top-line results. Sure. Thank you very much. Um, as you said, acute kidney injury is, is quite common in cirrhosis and is really associated with pretty poor outcomes. But unlike much of uh, AKI in the hospital, the area of AKI and cirrhosis is really interesting to study because making the diagnostic distinction between the etiologies of AKI really actually matters significantly. It's usually actually fairly depressing to be on the nephrology consult service, which I do a lot because we see patients with AKI and it's usually ATN and we tell the team to avoid nephrotoxins and wave our hands. There's not that much we can offer. But in the setting of cirrhosis, where you're trying to distinguish acute tubular necrosis from a renal syndrome and pre-renal azotemia, you actually do have some, some therapies you can offer, which are at least fairly effective. And it really matters to accurately be able to distinguish the etiologies. As you know, and as I'm sure most of the listeners know, unfortunately, this can be extremely difficult, especially trying to make the distinction between renal syndrome and ATN, where these patients are both critically ill, both have rapid rises in their creatinine, both fail volume resuscitation. And some of the usual metrics we use to di- make the diagnostic distinction, such as looking at the, the urinary phena and urinary microscopy, uh, are often muddied and not so helpful in patients with cirrhosis. So traditionally, uh, in lieu of those, people have used the International Ascites Club criteria to diagnose hepatorenal syndrome, which are useful, but they're really not sufficient in that they're not sensitive, really, or specific. Patients with ATN can, can and do quite easily fulfill all six out of six criteria, and patients really can have hepatorenal and, and not fulfill all six out of six. So what we were looking for here is really an objective test rather than uh, going on the usual clinical variables and trying to make this really difficult distinction subjectively at the bedside. An objective test that you could send would really uh, greatly assist uh, with making this critical diagnostic distinction. So what we did was uh, our study was a multi-center cohort study. We enrolled patients at four centers. And the way we enrolled our patients was we screened uh, each hospital daily for admissions for patients with cirrhosis. We then determined whether these patients had a documented baseline outpatient creatinine within the previous year. And if they did so, they were followed daily for their labs. And if their labs, if their creatinine rose to the point of qualifying for acute kidney injury uh, relative to that outpatient creatinine, they were enrolled in the study. Over the course of the study, we ended up rolling approximately 188 patients. And when we went to perform the study in terms of using these biomarkers, we tried to decide which patients were we going to actually investigate further. And what we decided to do was initially just to use the biomarkers in patients who had progression over their AKI to a higher stage. That is, the patients were diagnosed with acute kidney injury by what's called the Acute Kidney Injury Network, or ACIN criteria, 
which have a stage one, two, and three based on the severity of the, the AKI in terms of how high the creatinine has risen. We thought the most important patients uh, to really investigate the ones whose creatinine continued to worsen after they came in the hospital, those who continued to progress from one akin stage to the next, because the patients who came in, had their diuretics held, were given albumin, and their AKI resolved, really are not as much of, neither as important of a diagnostic distinction, nor as, as kind of vexing of a distinction as those who continue to progress. So we focused on the patients who had progression, and we wanted to utilize our biomarkers to make the diagnostic distinction. But the problem was, as in all times when you're trying to evaluate a new test, what you're going to use is the gold standard, because in terms of determining the test characteristics of a new test, the gold standard you're using is really just as important as the actual test. So rather than using IAC criteria, we use retrospective adjudication using two nephrologists and one hepatologist. So this is after the patients were either discharged or, or died during their hospitalization. We constructed a data form showing all their hospital events, their lab values, the medications they received, their vital signs, their past medical history, kind of everything you would need retrospectively to make the distinction as to what the etiology of the patient's AKI was. And clearly, this is not a practical thing to do at the point of care because you have to use to look back in retrospect. But the idea was to make as accurate of a gold standard as possible to test our new objective biomarkers against, and those biomarkers themselves could then be measured at the point of care. So the biomarkers we measured were primarily biomarkers of tubular injury. So we used uh, NGAL, which is neutrophil gelatinase-associated lipocalin, IL-18, KIM-1, which is kidney injury molecule 1, LFABP, liver-type fatty acid binding protein, and then some more conventional markers. We measured albumin, and we measured uh, urinary phenom. After we had adjudicated uh, our patients, we ended up adjudicating 83 out of our 188 patients that we had rolled. And then to boost the numbers a little bit, we also considered patients whose creatinine dropped to within 25% of their baseline within 48 hours of enrollment. We consider them as pre-renalizatemia because really no one with ATN or hepatorenal will recover that quickly and that completely. So after enrolling over patients and doing our adjudication, we ended up with 110 patients enrolled in our study. Of these, 39 were adjudicated to have ATN, 55 were adjudicated to have pre-renal azotemia, and 16 to have a powder renal syndrome. Looking through the results of our study, our initial table one showed the, the baseline and clinical characteristics of patients and those with and without ATN. We made the primarily distinction in the paper for ATN versus non-ATN in that most of these markers are markers of tubular injury, so they really should be distinguishing patients who actually have frank structural injury, which is ATN. So the, the primary distinction is between ATN and non-ATN, and then we, in some of our subsequent analysis, we also looked at all three dis diagnoses, ATN, pre-renal, and hepatorenal syndrome. And figure one kind of explains that, right? Yes, exactly. And looking at table one, there's not much distinction between these patients in terms of etiology of their cirrhosis, the severity of their cirrhosis in terms of previous complications, the reasons for admission. Patients with ATN versus non-ATN did have more advanced cirrhosis and they had a higher creatinine at the time of admission. I think one of the most interesting, interesting things in this table, though, is looking at the number of IAC criteria fulfilled for each of these, uh, these categories. Actually, I'm sorry, this isn't in table one. This is a subsequent table, but I'll just mention this here, is that looking at the number of IAC criteria, the median number of criteria was five out of six for all three diagnoses, pre-renal, ATN, and hepatorenal, showing that, once again, while this is a useful way to conceptualize hepatorenal syndrome, when actually practically applied to patients, there's really significant overlap and it, it really falls short as a, an objective, definitive test to use. So that was table one. The next thing we did was, again, using our initial characteristics of patients as ATN or non-ATN, look at the levels of all these biomarkers. This is table 2A, and showed a significant elevation in all of our injury markers, NGAL, IL-18, KIM-1, and LFABP, 
in the ATN relative to the non-ATN patients, and also an elevated albumin in the ATN patients. However, pheno uh, did not differ between these two patients. It was 0.31 in the ATN patients and 0.24 in the non-ATN patients. Trying to add a little more granularity to it, in Table 2B, we then broke down the three diagnoses distinctly for pre-renal, renal and ATN. Once again, ATN had the highest injury markers, which were statistically significantly elevated relative to both pre-renal and hepatorenal, all the uh, NGAL, IL-18, KIM-1, LFAP, albumin. However, only NGAL, IL-18, and albumin were elevated in ATN relative to hepatorenal. So all of them could distinguish ATN from pre-renal. Only those three could distinguish ATN from hepatorenal, as well as FENA, which was interestingly, FENA did not differ between ATN and pre-renal, but it was lowest in hepatorenal. It was 0.1 in hepatorenal patients, and that was significantly lower than either the pre-renal patients or the ATN patients, which I'll get to a little more at the end, but I think is really one of the significant take-homes from this patient, this paper, that FENA, which is often ignored in, in the setting of cirrhosis because the usual diagnostic distinction of looking at a cutoff of higher or lower than 1% is really kind of moot in cirrhotic patients. I think it may be rescued a bit and, and could have some utility going forward. So that was Table 2. Moving on from Table 2, so we first did that to just look, make sure there was an objectively distinct level of these markers between diagnosis. Our next purpose of the paper really was to see how this could be actually used practically, how these biomarkers would affect clinical practice. So the first way we went about looking at that was in Table 3 to look at the objective test characteristics. And this is looking at the diagnosis of ATN. Again, this kind of the primary focus of the paper was using these markers to distinguish ATN. So we um, performed AUC analysis and found what the optimal cut point for each of these markers was for the diagnosis of ATN, and then showed the, the AUCs for each marker, as well as the validation AUC, where we did a, a validation leave one out validation study. The highest AUC is for NGAL, which is 0.78, followed by albumin at 0.73, and IL-18 at 0.71. So we were pretty happy with these AUCs, but the problem with AUC analysis in terms of translating to clinical practice is you're not really sure what to do with that. You're standing at the bedside and you measure a patient's IL-18 and it's above the cut point here of 85 and you say, well, the AUC of them having ATN is 0.71 and uh, what on earth is a clinician to do with that? So we tried to take it a little further, use two different methods to really kind of explain the, the clinical applicability of this. And the first was using likelihood ratios. And for those listeners who aren't quite as familiar with likelihood ratios, Likelihood ratios really estimate how much uh, your clinical suspicion for disease pretest should shift based on the given test results. So you initially start to formulate a pretest probability. You measure your test. You see if it's above or below whatever your given diagnostic threshold is. And then doing some calculations, you determine how that test result affects your post-test probability. And this is shown in Figure 3. So these are the four best markers from the AUC analysis. And I... Uh, taking uh, various pretest probabilities and post-test probabilities, looking at what the optimal cutoffs for ATN for these markers were, and then saying, okay, if this was our pretest probability and our marker was either above or below its optimal ATN cutoff, how does this affect our post-test probability for the diagnosis of ATN? And as you can see, uh, the most useful area to use a likelihood ratio is kind of when the pretest probability is, is uncertain. When it's all the way at the ends where you're almost sure a test is a disease is in fact present or you're almost sure it's not present, they're not so useful. But it's kind of the more importantly in the kind of muddy middle where it really comes into play. So if a patient's pretest probability for ATN was about 40% and their NGAL is above 365, their post-test probability is all the way up to 75%. And similarly, if it's uh, if their FEN is less than one, it, the pretest probability is 0.4, the post-stress is down to about 0.17 or 0.18. 
So as an individual marker, this is actually pretty helpful. Um, it certainly doesn't definitively rule a test in or out, but it, given the situation where it's almost a coin flip, it really pushes you in one way or another. I think that figure is very helpful. I think for a lot of the readers, it takes you explaining it a little bit, but I think it once you put it in perspective and you kind of give an example, it makes it quite useful. Absolutely, yes. I think bike lead racers are, are catching on a bit more because a lot of the, the more kind of advanced statistics that we use are, are very are helpful and certainly valid, but for the, the clinician at the bedside, some of these models, it's hard to kind of slap a model onto a patient, whereas something like this where you have a one objective cutoff number you say is the test above or below this number, uh, just that one simple test really could alter your, your likelihood of the disease being present. So from there, we could, to finish up, we kind of, that was with one, one marker, and we decided to look how utilizing a panel of markers would work. This is table four and figure four. So we took, going back again to table three to the AUC analysis, we took the, the four most useful markers, MGAL, IL-18, LFABP, and albumin, and again, used the same cutoffs what the optimal cutoff for the diagnosis of ATN was. And then we looked at what patients' relative risk for having ATN was relative to how many of those markers were above the, the optimal cut point. And it's a nice stepwise progression, as you can see there, from relative to having zero markers above their ATN cut point. As you move up to having three or four markers positive, the relative risk is almost 10 and then over 13. So really extremely useful to have a panel of markers where you can look at them in, in concert and see multiple ones indicating ATN. The likelihood of it actually being ATN is extremely high. And to finish up, uh, kind of looking at that visually done in figure four, this is, again, looking at the number of those same four markers. I'm looking at the number of the markers above their optimal cut point for ATN. And I'm looking at the three diagnoses, ATN, hepatorenal, and prerenal, and seeing based on how many of those four markers were above their optimal cut point for ATN, what the ultimate diagnosis was. And so if none of their markers were above, AT, or above their optimal level for ATN, only 7% of them were actually ended up being adjudicated with it, Whereas if all four out of four were over their optimal cut points, 91% were ultimately adjudicated as having ATN. And unlike the likelihood ratio, this is with no pretest probability. This is knowing nothing at all about the patient except measuring these biomarker values. So since in clinical practice you actually do have some pretest probability and hopefully are leaning one way or another, I think applying a panel like this would be even more successful than kind of the blind measurement demonstrated here. I think overall that it tells a compelling story about, you know, some potential utilization of these markers. Now, they're not ready for prime time. They're not in clinical practice. Right. Where do you see this moving forward from here? Several ways I think we can move it forward. One, one, just what we can do currently, I think, in table of figure two, I didn't mention this one, but this shows the kind of novel markers which aren't yet in clinical practice, at least in the U.S. Actually, several of these are, are used and have been used clinically worldwide for, for many years. We're kind of lagging a bit here. But FINA, if you look at in table figure uh, 2B, the FINA level for HRS is 0.1, whereas for pre-renal and ATN, it's, it's 0.3. And this has been demonstrated in some other studies as well. So I think the, the FINA actually does have some clinical applicability if we kind of reconceptualize what positive or negative is or what our cut point should be. Virtually everyone is under 1% and virtually everyone's even under 0.5%. But someone with a pattern renal should be really significantly lower than that. So someone whose FINA is 0.4, 0.5, I think that actually argues, argues fairly significantly against the diagnosis of the panorenal. So I think FINA can be used clinically, and then albumin also, also there in figure 2B, at least for distinguishing ATN from other, the albumin is significantly higher. Certainly not at all in the range of nephrotic proteinuria or any, any really significant proteinuria, even microalbuminuria, but relative to the prerenal and the panorenal is still higher. So I think that's what we can do currently. Moving forward, I think the biomarkers 
here, these injury biomarkers, are really just the first step because, as we've been saying, the primary thrust of this paper was to diagnose ATN because these are markers of injury. But there is overlap, as you can see from these bar graphs, and it's overlap between HRS and pre-renal as well. So I think ultimately having a panel is a good idea, but not only including injury markers, but also mark, including potentially markers of intensity of vasoconstriction, which I think would kind of flip this picture here where your hepatorenal ones would be very high and your other ones would be lower. And then finally, maybe markers of tubular integrity, something like urinary cystatin C, which is a molecule which is usually freely filtered by the kidney, but then almost totally reabsorbed. And the tubule sort of appears in the urine that's indicative of tubular dysfunction. So kind of a panel combining markers of tubular integrity, intensity of vasoconstriction, and tubular injury Putting those all together, I think you could really nicely categorize people more based on just their renal, the renal pathophysiology, kind of along the spectrum of where these diseases lie, and not be so focused on on labeling someone one one unique distinct diagnostic label, which is ultimately going to be very difficult at the point of care. Sure. Well, Dr. Belcher, thank you for taking us through this study and uh, really giving us a better glimpse at, at what you you and your team were able to do and continue to do. We uh, certainly look forward to uh, to more work from your group, and I hope this is helpful to the listener as far as their own clinical practice and how potentially they can use it, even if it's just using the FENA. I think that would be uh, potentially clinical use- clinically useful for them. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Harrison. Thank you for having me on. All right. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.